What's up, Cake Nation, and welcome back to the Chemistry Cake online podcast, where chatting about chemistry has never been sweeter. Chemistry Cake is online, and today is the last episode of our astro and atmospheric chemistry season. We definitely reached for the sky and made it out of this world at this season, and I am so hyped to be closing the season with a super sweet guest who is a close friend of mine who's done and is still doing amazing work. He received his bachelor's degree in chemistry at Stetson University, has done some incredible work with Chemists Without Borders, and is currently an atmospheric chemistry PhD student at the University of California, San Diego. Folks, please give a warm, warm welcome to today's sweet guest, Adam Cooper. Adam, it is so wonderful to have you on the show. How have you been? It's amazing to be here. (laughs) I'm glad to be landing us back down from the clouds. Yes. last guest. Hopefully I'll have a strong finish. I think so. I'm super excited. So you study atmospheric chemistry and uh, actually you and Ryan, who I interviewed a few weeks ago, are in the same research group, um, which is super cool. Um, Now I have to ask, because I read your response uh, previous to this interview, you define atmospheric chemistry as using all disciplines of chemistry, which is consistent with what Dr. Nadine bourgeois Dedekin had mentioned earlier this season, to better understand Earth's protective and sometimes deadly gaseous layer. And I, I found that definition so intriguing. Could you tell us a little more about why you defined it that way? Yeah. Do you mean the different disciplines or the deadly hook? The, de- the deadly hook. <laughs> <laughs> So first, just to give a little bit of cred to the atmosphere, without it, we wouldn't be here. Right. You know, it protects us from UV radiation, mm-hmm. it contains a lot of oxygen for us to breathe, mm-hmm. and it's responsible for a lot of the climate properties that make Earth such a fun place to live on. Right. However, there are issues. Oh. Um, Eight million people a year die due to air pollution. Oh. Um, about half of that's inside, about half of that's outside. Um, And here in my research, I deal mostly with ambient air pollution. And you can separate that into two main camps. Mm -hmm. One is tropospheric ozone. Mm -hmm. So the same molecule, ozone, um, three oxygens bonded together. The same one that shields us from UV radiation in the stratosphere, um, the upper atmosphere, is quite harmful in the lower atmosphere, Mm -hmm. um, in the troposphere. Um, and that's a strong oxidant. So if you breathe that in, you smell like a burning sensation, it can cause bad impacts on your lungs, and it's kind of just like getting burned by the atmosphere. That does not sound pleasant. It's a big yikes. That is a big yikes. All capital letters, bolded, underlined, italicized. (laughs) (laughs) And I hope I did a good job with ozone, because I don't really focus on that. My main area of research is in aerosols Aerosols. and aerosol pollution, um, particularly the World Health Organization, the EPA, um, define it as PM 2.5 air Mm -hmm. pollution. And so that's atmospheric particles suspended in the atmosphere less than two and a half micrometers in size. Okay. So very, very tiny and smaller. Mm -hmm. Okay. Say more words about that. Say more words about your research. (laughs) Yeah, so my main research theme is about tracking oceanic pollution, Mm -hmm. Um, so plastics, sunscreens, sewage even, Mm -hmm. and how that evolves out of the ocean and into the atmosphere. Right. And so my particular research is with toxic aerosols, 
and that's kind of a growing field mm -hmm. and all of the institutional guidelines we have in place in the US and around the world only deal with total mass of aerosols. The more we breathe in, the more it impacts our lungs, the more we cough and sneeze and so on. Mm -hmm. But what we're finding more and more is that the composition, the chemistry of the aerosols really matters what they're made of. Mm -hmm. And so I study a lot of these persistent organic pollutants Ooh. that can be neurotoxic um, and have other negative health impacts mm -hmm. that are found in those aerosols. And how when we're breathing the air outside or inside, we might be getting these organic molecules in our bodies that accumulate over time. I see. So um, what kind of organic molecules are we talking about? Are we talking about like methane? Are we talking... So more complex molecules. Oh. Um, so my research group, we focus a lot on two main topics right now. One is plastics. Mm -hmm. And so you have whole microplastic pieces. You have BPA, um, bisphenol A. Um, which is a hardener in plastics um, that you might have heard of before it kind of made the news when it was being banned in all like water bottles because they used to use mm -hmm. it in water bottles they found it was leaching out and it was mm -hmm. leading to a lot of negative health impacts right um, the research topic I focus on is actually sunscreens mm. um, which are really making the headlines all around the world for their impact on coral reefs yeah. um, they're causing coral bleaching and a yeah. lot of deaths of a coral system but they're also toxic to humans and they're pretty safe when we put them on our skin, uh, for the most part. There's some benefits, some drawbacks with a lot of sunscreens. Um, but when we respire them, when we breathe them in, mm. they access our bloodstream directly. There's not a protective layer like our skin um, serves as to protect us from sunscreen getting into our bodies. Mm -hmm. um, and we're not um, consuming them orally, which a lot of other health studies have looked at, mm -hmm. and metabolizing them. When you breathe stuff in with a lot of these aerosol toxins, they go directly into your lungs and there's a much thinner barrier between your lungs and your bloodstream. Yeah. So a lot of this stuff gets into your blood, gets up to your brain a lot quicker. And many of these sunscreens are mostly um, endocrine disruptors yeah. and so they mess with our hormonal systems. Just a quick plug, endocrine disruptors, calling out Catherine Hatcher. That is the name of her podcast. Go listen to it. <laughs> I'll have to look at that one next. Yeah, that one's it's 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 a phenomenal podcast. Totally listen to it. Um, okay, so so chemicals and sunscreens. What what kind of chemicals are we talking about? Yeah, so the three main ones I look at are octanoxate, oxybenzone, and octocrylene. So I'm hearing a lot of eight and oxygen. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay, tell us about these molecules. Yeah, so a lot of them are based around very aromatic conjugated structures, okay. um, which makes sense because they're UV filters. Right. And so they function on our skins by absorbing a lot of UV radiation. You need a mm -hmm. conjugated system to do that yep. and then dissipate that energy to their surroundings. Right. But uh, there's another molecule that has a phenolic ring in it that we use a lot in our bodies called estrogen. Ah, um, yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> tell me more. Yeah, but, I, don't, I, don't know how, I don't know how much I can tell you about estrogen. I, I'm, I'm not a subject uh, matter expert on that. <laughs> okay. yeah. 
But a lot of these UV filters have very similar structures mm -hmm. um, to a lot of the biomolecules that we use. Right. And so our bodies get confused, and that's what leads to a lot of the negative health impacts. Yeah, that makes them. sense, yeah. So, so for folks at home, um, and this is, you had mentioned something that actually makes me really excited is uh, that these aromatic rings quote unquote shield us from UV. Uh, UV light. Um, the reason why that makes me really excited is because um, my students in lab, they run TLC. And in order for them to image this TLC, uh, their silica uh, plates are treated with um, a fluorophore. And so it'll fluoresce if you put it under UV light. And so what's interesting is that a lot of the compounds that they work with are aromatic. They have conjugated systems. And so um, for folks that don't know how TLC works or thin layer chromatography, um, essentially what they'll do is they will spot the plate with their compound and then run it in a development chamber with whatever solvent system they've decided to choose. Um, and then they will visualize it underneath a UV light and then they'll see dark spots. And the reason why they see dark spots is that these molecules absorb at that uh, wavelength. And so um, the only reason why that makes me really excited is because this is a, an explanation that it's like, oh, this is a really great teaching moment. I must tell everyone why this works. So um, that's a quick aside of, as to why uh, these aromatic compounds in your sunscreens are working the way that they do. So, mm -hmm. moving on. So we talked about, um, did we talk about a particular compound? Are we gonna talk about each of them individually or? Yeah, so my main focus right now is octanoxate. Um, just because as an atmospheric chemist, it's the most interesting structure to mm. look at. Um, so you have, like I said before, the aromatic ring, which right. is very reactive site. You also mm. have a um, olefin, you have an alkene mm -hmm. um, that's present right next to an ester. Oh. And then you have a long alkyl chain. Okay. And the largest reaction, the most important reaction we think of is the OH radical, yeah. um, known as the kind of detergent of the atmosphere. Right. Um, and that can add onto conjugated systems, so onto alkenes, mm -hmm. um, onto the aromatic rings, and it can abstract protons, abstract hydrogens from long alkyl chains. And that creates a radical organic structure. Right which rapidly wants to not be a radical organic structure. These things true. don't really like holding on to them. Mm. And so the next step in the reaction is to grab a lot of the oxygen from mm. around the atmosphere and attack onto that. So oxygen can hold a radical a lot easier than a lot of these organics can. Mm -hmm. And then you just start adding like two, oxy uh, two oxygen atoms, an oxygen molecule onto the organic structure. You might have already attacked it with another OH and suddenly you're starting to really oxygenate this organic molecule. Um, this causes a lot of changes kind of macroscopically. Mm -hmm. When you're looking at compounds, um, we call it the O to C ratio, so the ratio of oxygen to carbons right. in a molecule, and that really governs a lot of its macroscopic properties, mm -hmm. like phase state, if it's going to go from a gas into an aerosol or once it's in the aerosol, how hygroscopic it is, how much yeah. it wants to attract water, how much it wants to be more liquid-like than solid-like. I'm sure Ryan probably yeah, talked Ryan a lot about this. Yeah, Ryan definitely talked about that. <laughs> but that's exciting. Well, exciting in that it's certainly interesting, but also like 
yikes. <laughs> so I, I also, and this is just my organic chemist brain thinking of, um, so you mentioned that there's an ester mm-hmm. in this molecule and that it can become a radical. Um, and part of me also heard uh, that there was an olefin or an alkene. Mm-hmm. Um, and so part of me also wonders, um, n- well, not only will it react with the oxygen in the air, but does it also polymerize with itself mm-hmm. um, and form poly- like polymeric aerosols that way? And is that potentially hazardous? <laughs> <laughs> Folks at home can't see. I'm like moving my arms in like a like a question mark way, just like. <laughs> yeah, it, it's so difficult to try to describe molecules without drawing them out. This is true. We're gonna have um, to. Yeah. But yeah, that totally happened, and that's actually its main um, uh, photochemical byproduct. Uh, um, mostly on those two alkene sites, you get a two plus two cycloaddition, which oh. is one of the only photochemical reactions I remember from organic chemistry too. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really learned the crap out of that one because you can make a box out of it, and always yeah. thought that was kind of cool. Yeah. And so you can make these larger molecules that don't want to be gases because they're getting too heavy, and they also condense down to the particle phase. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of these reactions, you're adding functionality or you're adding carbon to a system, making them heavier. But eventually, you pump in so much oxygen on a molecule, it can't take it anymore. And then right. it breaks apart, it fragments. Oh, so what happens when it fragments? That sounds very painful. <laughs> well, two things. In the aerosol gas phase ballad and that dance, mm-hmm. when you fragment down to smaller molecules, the more volatile. And so they get out of the aerosol phase, oh. which means we're breathing in less of them, which is nice. Okay. And also, these molecules, they're toxic because of their structures. So as you change their structure, you also change their toxicity. Right. And so oftentimes we think of, oh, when things are reacting in the atmosphere that are toxic, it's a good thing. We're disrupting their structure, they'll become less toxic. Mm. However, that's not always the case. Some of these products are more toxic, some of them are less toxic. Mm -hmm. Um, Oftentimes they're less toxic. What really led me to looking at octanoxate is in controlled studies that other researchers have done, uh, mostly with photolysis and ozonolysis, Mm -hmm. because that really is what dominating the aqueous phase. And people don't really think about sunscreens in the atmosphere yet, just in the water. Mm -hmm. Um, Their products are more toxic. Because if these things are toxic, they stick around for a while. And when they react, they just become more toxic. That's potentially a problem. Yeah. And that's something we need to think of because we're making thousands of tons of sunscreen. Mm-hmm. And they're an important class of molecule. We need photoprotection. Yeah. We can't be exposed to the sun at all times. Well, we see big rates of you know sunburn, sun cancer, mm-hmm. like just aging of the skin. Mm-hmm. And so that's what really attracted me to this project from like a policy standpoint is, mm-hmm. yeah, this might be an environmental concern, but what's the alternative? What's right. the cost-benefit analysis? Right. And like, what should we actually do once we know more about this subject? Yeah. And that's what really interests me, not as a researcher, but as like a citizen invested <laughs> in this because yeah. we should figure it out. This is super interesting. 
Um, and you mentioned policy, which is a really great segue to um, some of the work that you've done with Chemists Without Borders. And I wanted to ask about that because uh, Adam did give a talk at ACS. I attended that and it was phenomenal. Um, and so could you tell us about some of the stuff that you've done with them? Yeah, so my side gig. <laughs> <laughs> well. <laughs> yeah, so I, I went to school at a really small private liberal arts college. There wasn't a lot of research going on there, mm -hmm. and so I kind of had to get creative when it came to research. Mm -hmm. um, so here I was like 18 years old. I just knew two things. I liked chemistry. I liked helping people, yeah. and I didn't know what to do with that. I was like, uh, I could like go volunteer at a museum. I can go the science like education, communication route, which is awesome, but I wanted to get my hands dirty, and I wanted right. to get some research experience. That's the one thing they beat into you is to get into grad school, you need research experience. Mm -hmm. So I just looked up a giant list of chemistry nonprofits, and right at the top was Chemists Without Borders. And they're not a huge organization. They've just been around for about 10 years. They're celebrating their anniversary at ACS, Woo! actually. <laughs> Yay! And I saw that they were doing this um, water um, project uh, with the arsenic crisis in Bangladesh. Mm -hmm. And I was part of another special program at my liberal arts school where they pay you to go out and volunteer. And they're like, fund your way to do that. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of... I just sent out a email out of nowhere to the CEO of Chemists Without Borders saying, hey, I've got funding. Can I help you with anything? And they said, yeah, you can go to Bangladesh. We haven't sent anyone there before. We have a team on the ground, and maybe you can help them out with fundraising and marketing. So I left the country for the first time, flew to Bangladesh by myself, got picked up by my host family, met um, two of the women we were working with there, and I started my work with Chemists Without Borders, and I've been working with them for, yeah, about four, four and a half, five years ever since. That's incredible. Yeah. Oh, that's great. It was really cool, and it was kind of just out of the blue. And it was a very, like, serendipitous moment, because I really think that led me to reaffirming my relationship with chemistry. Yeah. Um, really falling in love with that, for seeing how it can affect people, like, personally at the societal level. Mm -hmm just how we engage with the world around us because it's all made out of matter so chemists have an important role in that yeah that's super sweet oh i love that a lot uh and this is just a plug to the folks at home that um you can love chemistry and it doesn't have to be the quote unquote traditional way of loving chemistry um that's something that we want to highlight on this podcast is is chemistry is such a beautiful and such a rich field uh, and it's not just sitting in a lab with your beakers and Erlenmeyer flasks or if you're me round bottom flask is fine um, all day it can be traveling across the world and 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 definitely making a difference um, that's super cool yeah no for sure I think I think you've done incredible work um, and the work that you're doing now is also really really fascinating and very cool very cool stuff um, we however are nearing the end of our chat however before I close um, Adam if you I don't know if Ryan told you, but mm. <laughs> I have one last question. It's a very important question, and everyone knows what's coming, but it is imperative nonetheless. What is your favorite cake flavor and why? 
my favorite cake flavor isn't a flavor. Oh dear. It's a type of cake. It's a type of cake. Icebox cake. Icebox cake. What? Are you familiar? What is, what on earth, and in the atmosphere and in the outer space is icebox cake? <laughs> <laughs> it's what you eat when you want cake, it's, but you can't get it. It's what you eat when you want cake, but you can't get it. Yeah, so it's a family tradition of mine. Okay. And I really think it was born out of uh, my grandparents growing up. And so it's kind of like an alternative to cake that's delicious in its own way and that we still like serve and eat to this day. Yeah. It's very strange. You take a casserole dish. Okay. And you put graham crackers down on the walls. Okay. And then you add chocolate pudding to the very bottom. Oh. And another layer of graham crackers, then vanilla pudding, another layer of graham crackers, and chocolate pudding. Then you crush up graham crackers and put it all along the top. Uh-huh. That sounds delicious. Yeah. I also I also need to add icebox cake to the list of is this cake or not? Because cake <laughs> cake as in me cake is leaning towards yes, just because of the sentimental value, but I suppose I'll have to leave the uh, leave that to the round table. Um, but that sounds delicious. Wow, I really I really want to try that. Yep, just pudding and graham crackers. Were there marshmallows? You can add whatever you want to the top. Oh. I've seen Nilla wafers, I've seen marshmallows. You can really go all out with it. Wow, that sounds phenomenal. Oh my god. But gosh. not all cake needs to be spongy and solid this phase. Is, hmm. You can make it a little a little liquid. A little liquidy. In between. Yeah. A little jelloey. Semi <laughs> semi solid. Semi solid. Are we talking about like how how liquid or how solid particles are is that what we're doing now is the thing that i remembered from ryan's yeah i don't i don't know the bounce factor of, ice, <laughs> of, of, of the ice box cake i've never dropped it hmm but i feel like it would be bouncy because it's more liquid wait is it are solids more bouncy is solids that, are more bouncy dang well i guess we're gonna have to go to the lab and figure that out huh Okay, Ryan, if you're listening to this, this is, this is what we're going to have to do when we get back to lab. Um, <laughs> okay. Ah, sweet friend. Thank you so much for chatting with me today. This has been a phenomenal chat. It's been such a great, such a great way to end the season. Um, I loved, loved learning and listening about your science. To the listeners at home, I hope you enjoyed listening to the science and joining in our chat today. Um, I hope you learned something new because I know I surely did. Um, if y'all would like to follow the many atmospheric adventures of Adam Cooper and the many science policy adventures of Adam Cooper, feel free to follow him on Twitter at Kem Cooper. And of course, if you would like to join the Cake Nation and receive your daily dose of hype, you can follow me on Twitter at Chemistry Cake and on Instagram at Chemistry Cake Online. Folks, Thank you so much for joining us today. We hope uh, you have a great day, a great week. Um, go out in the world and make someone smile. Thanks for tuning in. This is Chemistry Cake, signing off. <laughs>